from the Museum of Science Boston. This is Pulsar, a podcast where we answer questions from you, our audience. I'm your host, Eric O'Day. We have received some really great questions about spacewalks, and we thought, who better to answer those questions than an astronaut? Our guest today is Dr. Jeff Hoffman, who has logged over 1,200 hours in space over the course of five space shuttle missions. He is currently a professor of aerospace engineering at MIT's Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Dr. Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us on Pulsar. Nice to be here. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell us the story of how you became an astronaut? Well, I actually was always interested in space, even as a little kid, before Sputnik, before Yuri Gagarin and John Glenn. So my early childhood heroes were actually from science fiction, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers. When real people started flying in space, I thought, hey, this is really cool. My dad used to take me to the planetarium, and so I was interested in space scientifically as well. And it became apparent pretty soon that all the early astronauts were military pilots, and that was not a career for me. So I pursued my scientific interests, ended up with a doctorate in astrophysics from Harvard, and I was working at MIT, basically putting telescopes to look at celestial x-rays up in satellites. This was now in the mid to late 70s, when NASA was just starting to test this brand new space shuttle vehicle, which had a crew of seven and only needed two pilots. So that's what really opened possibilities for scientists, engineers, medical doctors. And when they asked for applicants for the first group of shuttle astronauts, I figured, sure, I dreamed about it, even though I had never considered it a realistic career possibility. But now with the shuttle, it was. And I was lucky enough to get selected the first time around. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. One of the things that you've done while up in space is go on a lot of spacewalks. So to start with, we got a question from Liam. Why do we need to do that? There are many things that are just beyond the capacity of 21st century robotics. And, you know, we have eyes and hands and brains to put on the spot. And we've shown over and over again that having a person who can adapt when things don't go exactly as planned and can use lots of different tools, we can do things that you just can't do from inside the spacecraft operating robotics. I love robotics in space. I'm sending a robotic experiment to Mars this summer, but nevertheless, there are things and we've demonstrated over and over that in certain circumstances, you go out there in a spacesuit and you can fix things or reconfigure things that couldn't be done otherwise. Now, you were part of the Hubble Space Telescope rescue mission spacewalks, but your first shuttle mission also made some spacewalk history. So can you tell us all about your spacewalk experience? On every shuttle flight, two people are trained to use spacesuits, even if a spacewalk is not planned, just in case something happens. And I was one of those two people on my very first flight back in 1985. We were not planning to do any spacewalks. We were going up basically to launch two telecommunications satellites. But one of those satellites didn't turn on. And so they came up with a plan to send my partner and me out to attach two special tools, which we had to make on the spot because none of this had been planned, and attach them to the end of the robotic arm. And then the next day we flew up to the satellite to use those tools to flick a little switch to turn the satellite on. Well, 
NASA had never done an unplanned contingency spacewalk in its whole history. It was bad luck for the satellite people, but great luck for me because eight years later, when it came time to select a crew for the Hubble Space Telescope, that was such a critical mission because here was Hubble, over a billion dollar project, lots of public interest after Hubble was put into space in 1990 and that summer when they discovered it couldn't focus properly. I mean, it was a terrible time for NASA, for the astronomy community. And NASA's future was really on the line in many ways. And so anything that could be done to reduce the risk of failure was done, including a requirement that anybody who was going to do spacewalks to fix Hubble had to have already done a spacewalk before. And because of my contingency spacewalk, I had my union card, so to speak. And so I was fortunate enough to get on that mission. Why we had to go and fix it? I mean, Hubble was designed to be repairable by astronauts so that we could take scientific instruments or electronic boxes or whatever, they could be removed and replaced. It was not designed for robotic servicing. Actually, after the Columbia, when for a time the NASA administrator said it was too dangerous to send another mission to Hubble because they didn't have the opportunity then to go to the space station if they had a problem with their tiles, a lot of thought was given to could we do a robotic servicing mission? And when I look at all the problems that we ran into I was on the first rescue mission, but Hubble has been serviced five times, and other missions have also run into trouble. And they're just things that our current robotic technology could not have dealt with. There were probably some tasks, if everything had worked properly, you might have been able to do some of those tasks. But I mean, we were, we were in there messing around with one of the tasks with two millimeter screws that were floating around. And we were really at the limit in that particular task of what we could do with spacesuit, big bulky gloves on and just beyond the capability of current robotics. We got a question from Laura about how you train for spacewalks on the Earth without those weightless conditions. Well, we can create a simulation of weightlessness for a spacesuit by going underwater. The spacesuit is filled with air, and so it wants to float up to the top, just like if you try to put a beach ball or something underwater. And so then safety divers attach lead weights to our chest, our arms, our legs to basically neutralize the buoyancy so we don't sink, we don't float. It's not exactly like being in space because the water has a certain viscosity. You have to train yourself not to swim because I, <laughs> you can swim in the water, but you can't swim in space in a vacuum. Once you learn how to take advantage of the water tank, it's really superb training. I'll never forget my very first spacewalk, the one where we weren't planning to go out, but you know, there I was. And I'll never forget, I opened the hatch and I sort of was sliding out with my face facing down towards the floor of the shuttle's cargo bay because I had to go over to the tool chest to get my tools out. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this really feels just like in the water. That was great training. Then I got the tools and I turned around and there was the earth and the sky and, oh, wow, we're not in the water tank anymore. But it was superb training. Getting ready for Hubble, we spent about 400 hours underwater. 
So we got a question from Kate. How much does a spacesuit weigh? In space, nothing. But here on Earth, the current generation of spacesuits weighs about 300 pounds, which is really too much. They're trying to get the weight down, but it's tough. You have all the life support equipment that you carry in your backpack and a lot of the seals, originally they tried to make them out of aluminum, but they had to go over to stainless steel because it was stronger. When you're floating weightless in space, you don't really care that much about the weight of your spacesuit, although it does have a certain inertia that you have to deal with. But if we're going to go to the moon or eventually Mars, I mean, the moon has one-sixth gravity, so a 300-pound spacesuit, that would be like about 50 pounds on Earth, which you know, is is doable. On Mars, 38% of the Earth, you're talking well over 100 pounds. I don't know if you've ever tried to carry a 100-pound pack around, but it's not much fun. So if we're going to be serious about going to Mars, we really have to develop a lighter spacesuit. Finally, do you have any advice for any of our listeners who might be aspiring astronauts? In your student years, the important thing is to build up your math, your science skills, be comfortable with computers, and excellence in everything you do. And then, of course, follow what's happening with the space program, because things are changing. We have private companies now. Ten years from now, it's not going to be just NASA astronauts who go into space. I hope that a lot more people will have the opportunity to experience the things that I did because it's a different world up there and it's fascinating and it's a whole new human experience. I hope other people can share it. Dr. Hoffman, thanks so much for coming on Pulsar and answering our questions. Always a pleasure. If you'd like to have one of your questions answered by a visiting expert or a Museum of Science educator, you can email them to sciencequestions at mos.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Pulsar, don't forget to subscribe on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify, as well as leaving a rating or review for us. Please visit www.mos.org slash science matters to support MOS at home. That's it for this episode of Pulsar. Join us again soon.